I'm Mari Frank, host of Privacy Piracy, which airs every Monday morning from 8 to 9 a.m. in the morning. And I'm also pleased to present the weekly segment of Orange County Sheriff News and Safety Tips. And we are so pleased today to have Lieutenant Paul Fuzzard, who is in charge of the Community Services Bureau of the Orange County Sheriff Department. And he has been with the department for 24 years. Thank you so much for joining us, Paul. Uh, Very glad to be here, Mari. Well, Paul, tell us, what is the mission of the Community Services Bureau, and and what's your role? Well, the mission of the uh, Community Services Bureau is to augment the regular sheriff's personnel. Uh, We also provide additional personnel at planned special events and unplanned events, like last year's fires. Our reserves provide uh, 80,000 hours of volunteer services per year, saving $7 million a year. Wow. My role is like uh, an employment agency. I take requests for volunteers from throughout the department and throughout the county and fill those requests with the appropriate volunteer uh, sheriff personnel. We are asked to provide staff for the Orange County Fair, county elections, Swallows Day celebration in San Juan Capistrano, as well as every parade, 5K run, 4th of July celebration, and high school football game in the sheriff-patrolled areas uh, throughout the year. Wow. So what programs are included in the Bureau, like I know you have the PSRs. Why don't you explain a little bit about that? Well, our PSRs, we have uh, 400 professional service responders who are uh, non-law enforcement volunteers and assist the department at places like the John Wayne Airport. They're also in our search and rescue unit, high-tech services, uh, crime prevention, harbor patrol, and the coroner's office. Uh, They also represent the department at many of our community functions. And you also have the explorers. What are those? Our explorers, uh, we have... uh, about 180 explorers. They're kids 14 to 21 years of age, and uh, they get to learn about police procedures, leadership, responsibility, and teamwork. It's a great segue in the law enforcement career for uh, for young kids these days. Well, you know, Paul, you do such a wonderful job. We're going to have you back again to tell us more about those great programs. So thank you for joining us. That'll be great. I look forward to it, Mari. Thank you. All right. You. Bye-bye. Weekly Signals. Join me, Mike Casper, and Nathan Callahan for the best in reality-based radio. That's Weekly Signals. Check out the website at weeklysignals.com. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the web. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm Lloyd. I'm the show's engineer, and your host is Mari Frank. Mari's a local attorney and certified information privacy professional. She's the author of several books, including Safeguard Your Identity, From Victim to Victor, and The Complete Idiot's Guide to Recovering from Identity Theft. She's testified many times in Congress and the California Legislature on privacy and identity theft issues. And you may have seen her on Dateline, 48 Hours, CNN, NBC, ABC, O'Reilly Factor, and many other shows, including her own 90-minute PBS television special, Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. To learn more about this radio show and our great guests, please visit KUCI.org slash privacy piracy. Hey, Mari, what's our show about today? 
Good morning. Well, we are sitting here at the International Association of Privacy Professionals in Washington, D.C., and we're so thrilled to again welcome one of our very favorite guests, our wonderful friend, Dr. Larry Poneman. For those of you who don't remember him, you should remember him. You can always go back to our website at KUCI.org slash privacy piracy and see and listen to his previous interviews. But let me tell you a little bit about this wonderful man who's who we're lucky to call our friend. Dr. Larry Poneman is a pioneer in the development of privacy audits, privacy risk management, and ethical information management. He is the chairman and founder of the Poneman Institute, and based upon his vast experience in the fields of corporate governance, privacy compliance, data protection, and business ethics, he consults with leading multinational organizations on global privacy management programs and so much more. Dr. Poneman was appointed to the Advisory Committee for the privacy, for privacy for the United States Federal Trade Commission and to two California Task Forces on Privacy and Data Security Laws. He also was appointed by the governor of Arizona to serve as a public member of the State Board of Optometry. Dr. Poneman has had held chaired faculty positions at Babson College and SUNY Binghamton, and he's published dozens of articles and five learned books. He's a frequent media commentator on privacy and other business ethics topics for CNN, Fox News, CNBC, CBS, MSNBC, The Wall Street Journal, New York Times, Washington Post, and so much more. And he's really graced us with coming on Privacy Piracy. So you can learn more about him and the great work that they do and the wonderful research studies at Poneman.org and also at KUCI.org slash Privacy Piracy. You'll see his picture and you will also see the background, more background about him, and also you can link to his website. So thank you, Larry, for, I know you're getting ready to go to London, and you're getting ready for a speaking engagement today, so we grabbed you, so thank you so much. I am so delighted to do this interview with you. Thank you for this great opportunity, and you're definitely on the top list of favorite people, you and Lloyd. Well, thank thank you. Well, thank you. All right, so let's get started. Let's talk first about Americans' opinion about health care. That is a Mm -hmm. huge issue now. I know the Poneman Institute recently did a study about Americans' opinions on health care. How important was health care privacy to Americans? Well, as you probably expect, it's very important to Americans. We have an expectation that our medical information is sacred. Mm -hmm. And that it's not going to leak out. It's not going to be lost. It's information that defines who we are in the physical sense. And so we really don't want that information to basically fall into the wrong hands like bad guys and and identity theft criminals. We also don't want people to make mistakes with the information that we entrust to our, our health providers like our doctors and dentists and hospitals and clinics. So in general, it is a huge issue, and it continues to be a huge issue. We've been studying healthcare privacy for many years, and it basically doesn't seem to change. People care just as deeply about medical 
identity and medical uh, health information today as, say, four or five or even 10 years ago. So how does that compare with financial privacy or other kinds of a bank and credit card privacy? That's kind of interesting. If you look at other areas, like, for example, internet search or use of internet, people are kind of giving up on privacy. <laughs> They're saying, you know, look, I, I, I haven't uh, had a really bad experience. My credit card wasn't stolen. My identity wasn't stolen. Maybe it's okay. So they're much more tolerant of privacy abuses on the internet or in other domains. Second only to healthcare is financial information, bank mm-hmm. account information in particular, then followed by credit card information. But I think people care more about their healthcare data than just about any piece of personal information. Yes, and you're going to be talking about medical identity theft today at, your, at the conference. Topic, you I betcha. know, and it's a chapter in my new book, too. So it is a huge issue. I, I can tell you right now, I'm dealing with a woman that I've been trying to help for years. She had all sorts of identity theft, and now the biggest one is medical identity theft. Her identity was stolen by a woman who's bipolar. Oh, my goodness. And so they have almost the same name. The middle name is the only thing that's different. And so now every time my client wants to do something, she is considered bipolar. So the police won't believe her. The oh, uh, the health, the county health people aren't believing her. So that's my next big hurdle with her is to deal with, me, you know, mental health. Right. How do you yeah. prove, no, I'm not crazy? Sure. You know, because people will think, oh, you're probably crazy. So, you know, it I makes know sense. I crazy, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> but can you imagine if you didn't have that diagnosis of bipolar, and now you do, and the name is very, very close, except for the middle name? It's 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 going to be a challenge. I'll let you know how it turns out. Yeah, actually, you should be doing this presentation. <laughs> we should co-present. <laughs> Next time, we'll you do it. You got it. And I can't wait to read your new book, by the way. Yeah, Congratulations. Yeah, it's fun. Well, you're going to get a copy for a gift soon, too. Oh, well, thank you. All right, so you found that 73% of the respondents do not trust the federal government to protect the privacy of their health records. However, 71% of the respondents said that they do trust health care providers such as hospitals, mm-hmm. clinics, physicians. What's that all about? Well, let me ask you a question. Do you trust the federal government with your information? <laughs> no, but I don't trust hospitals either. I know. Okay. So, but, but I think what we find is that people have a belief that their health care provider, you know, your physician, Um, your primary care physician, that we have a belief that that person is doing a good job in protecting our information. There is no reason to believe, at least on the surface, that they're doing abusive things with the data, like mass marketing or selling our information. Um, And the evidence suggests that healthcare providers usually do a reasonably good job. They're not perfect. They're not always doing all of the things required, for example, under HIPAA. But in general, the providers are trusted well beyond any other organization, including insurance companies. They're also viewed pretty negatively in our study, but government was at the bottom. Now, there are a couple hmm. of reasons for it. I have to Okay. You know, okay. did the study. What was the topic of the day? The topic du jour was healthcare, redefining healthcare, you know, universal healthcare versus changing insurance regulations. That whole debate probably changed the, the mindset of many of our respondents. So when we gave them the option, you know, healthcare. They said, "Oh, that's the bottom of my list." It is possible that as this debate changes, and mm-hmm. maybe people think about other things, they would be more favorably inclined to healthcare. I'm not saying that's true. I'm saying it's right. a possibility. But we did find, in general, that people had very, very negative views of government. And you know, there are a couple of things too. For example, one of the proposals to create greater 
economic efficiency in healthcare is to create mega databases. Right. And these massive databases might be controlled by Google or by like, you know, maybe General Electric. Yes. And people, as they learn about this, are wondering, wait a second, that's my health data. Yeah. I mean, who's going to protect us? If, if someone hacks into this big monstrous database, number one, will we ever know about it? And number two, what's the remedy? So I really think it's not just negative to government. It's also government contractors and organizations that may be involved in creating electronic medical records and putting it on a large scale. Right. And I'm scared to death of medical records, you know, electronic medical records, sure. especially when you want to correct them if they're wrong. Oh, absolutely. You know, and it how have, <laughs> yeah, and what if they've been it proliferated all over, the, you know, to every healthcare provider around the whole country and there's an error? How do you go back and correct that all? Yeah, exactly. That's, that's a huge issue, I think. And it's really unclear whether you can even build a remedy that could solve that problem because once a mistake is made, it's, and, it's, and it's an electronic record, it's probably in the hands of hundreds, if not thousands of people. So it's a big issue. And especially for medical records, like with identity theft, which I know you're going to be talking about today, but with medical identity theft, for example, doctors don't want to change the record, okay? Right. And, and a lot of it has to do with malpractice issues. They don't want to have that change because they're worried about, well, our liability later. Mm -hmm. But what if you have a, a blood type B and, and your imposter has a blood type O, mm -hmm. or you're allergic to one medicine and they're allergic to another? I mean, what what are the issues then, you know? I mean, how do you correct this? Yeah, it, it, it is really a, a big problem. One of the things that we did in our study it, we actually debriefed about 30 to 35 people that were in the category of medical identity theft victims. Mm -hmm. And the stories that they told were just unbelievable. Like, for example, as you mentioned, knowing full well that there was an error in the medical record. It was someone else's blood type, for example. Right. Or they were diagnosed with a certain disease like um, type 2 diabetes, and they were perfectly healthy. They couldn't yes. change it. And their physician or the, the hospital or the provider basically wouldn't take any steps to change yes. it. It was kind of like, well, we don't have a procedure for it, so you're just going to have to live with the consequences. And by the way, next time you visit, just remember to let people know that you're not a type 2 diabetic. So if you're in a car accident, God forbid, or some, something happens to you. And you're unconscious. And there it is. You're medical. Oh, this person is a diabetic. We have to treat them a certain way. So these are huge problems. Well, in my, in my book, in my chapter, I, I create a whole, I kind of forge my way through the forest because I have gotten records changed. Changed, but it's been like pulling teeth to do that. But I have done that for, for clients who have said, wait a minute, I cannot have this pub, this record out there. And sure. it's and it's horrible for them. You oh, know, it's, whether it's a huge problem. And I don't think it's going to get better in the short term because we haven't built in procedures for this kind of crime. And the healthcare provider, they might say, well, how do I know you're telling me the truth? Right. How do, how do I know the right person and you're the wrong person? I mean, it, it's crazy. But unless we build in procedures, to get the healthcare providers to take this seriously and to make those changes and to have a you know like we have in our credit reporting system. Right. We need it. Yeah, need exactly. That's exactly what I recommend is that we need that kind of a but again, then you have these mega databases yes. again and and often those are are not correct and at least we have a mechanism for correcting them. I just want to say Susan Jason, who also is with the Poneman Institute, just joined us and I just want her to just say a quick hello because we're always we love Susan and we're so glad that she's here. Just say hi. Oh hi Mari. Thank you so much for having us here today. Well you, you guys do such great research and work so hard. We're always so thrilled to have you again. 
Thanks, Mari. So you found that American attitudes toward the federal government controlling and accessing health records were fairly negative. Very negative. Very negative. And then, interestingly, you found that 84% of Americans polled were not aware that the U.S. government is considering a national database for the health records. And which the other 6%. 16%, they were lying. <laughs> they just said they knew when they didn't. It was like, what? What are you talking about? Like, exactly. when we debrief people, they didn't understand what is really going on. And then you said 75% of respondents think that the creation of a database containing American health information is a bad idea. Yep. So, what's with all this distrust anyway? Well, it's funny. The results of that survey created some controversy with Health and Human Services. I don't want to pick on specific people, but okay. we had phone calls. Wait a second. It's a great idea. Think about the economic efficiency, how people will be better off, how we'll be able to access records in a nanosecond. Now you have paper files, and they may be lost or what. And it, you, you, they're right. You can come up with a thousand good arguments. And they talk about Katrina, yeah. or they talk Katrina. about, you know, earthquake. Like, sure. oh, my goodness, it would Volcano. be great. Volcano. Volcanoes. In Iceland. Yes, exactly. Right. They say, oh, it would be great. Well, you have it up in the clouds, you know? Yeah, so in, wherever you are, it, yeah. you can just grab it down, right? Yeah, but see, the problem that you have is we have um, a lot of concern about now we have all of this data in one place. Yes. Now, in theory, if you have a government that you trust, maybe it's okay. But if you have a government that's not trusted completely, suddenly you have a potential nightmare, right? Because that's the information that defines who you are. Exactly. And you don't want your neighbors, if you have a certain, can you mention bipolar, um, some form of cognitive or mental uh, illness? Uh, there are HIV. That, or HIV or type 2 diabetes, using yes. that example again. These are private issues for people, and we do care very deeply about our health information. We don't want our neighbor to know necessarily. Right, right, exactly. Especially if you have a neighbor from hell like I do, but that's another <laughs> story. <laughs> so who did Americans feel have the right to access these records in the National Database? Who do they think they, that should be able to access this? Well, they think they should be able to access, which makes sense, right? Yes. I mean, you want to be an informed patient. You want to be able to see your record, and you probably want to control it to some extent. Definitely your health care provider, though. See, that's that trust issue. They want their primary care physician or their clinic or, you know, doctor's office or dental dentist. They want those folks to be able to access it for purposes of treatment. Not for and and we all want to do that. You sure. know, I went to a dentist that uh, just about a week and a half ago that I was recommended to go to, and I thought that I just had a little problem with something between my teeth. And then he said, oh, my gosh, you have an abscess. And he oh, wanted no. to do this major stuff. And I said, oh, oh, my gosh, I just paid $200 for these x-rays. I want to send them electronically to my dentist. Right. Send them to me. I'll send them to my dentist. And I'm going to my own dentist. And um, it was great to be able to have that electronic record sure. for me to, even before I, I got an appointment with him, for him to diagnose it and say, Mari, get in here right away. we got to take care of you. Yeah. But that is one of the advantages. But the disadvantages, if I didn't get a chance to see it or if I didn't get a chance to, to know what was on there or if it was shared with someone I didn't want to see it, that's, that's the challenge. Yeah, that's the problem. So on the, on the one hand, you were a beneficiary of that great efficiency. Your yes. record was able to move quickly, and your abscess hopefully was completely yes. resolved. Yes, But then there's that other issue, of course, is now everyone's record is accessible by lots of people who you don't know. 
and you have no control over that. And it could and you, be corrupted. And it could be corrupted because, you know, mistakes are made. Forget about even the medical ID theft. It's mistakes occur. Exactly. So, boy, oh, Bob, look where we find ourselves here. <laughs> and, you know, I remember the United States Public Interest Research Group found that, for example, credit reports that we've had around for years, and we've yeah. had the Credit Reporting Act for many, many years, since the yeah. 70s, 70% of credit reports have errors. And 30% of those are enough to keep you from getting a job or getting a house or getting a loan or a credit card. So could you imagine with the medical records? I've had had errors in my medical records that have been crazy, you know, mixing me up with a guy. Yeah, that's not good. That's impossible. No, no, no. I'm really really a woman. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Anyway, that's, that's, we're going to be watching what you're learning about that as as things change. And especially with this new health care bill, this is a whole nother. Oh, my God. Where do, where does it what a end? can of worms, yeah. I know. Well, let's talk. You did so many great studies that oh, I want to get to four of them today because okay. you're doing them all the time. All right, so let's see. The next one was, um, are you ready for high tech? A benchmark study of healthcare covered entities mm-hmm. and business associates. So now we're going to talk a little bit about HIPAA. Okay, all right. my favorite topic. <laughs> First, you have to know how to spell HIPAA. Double A. Double A, a instead of, of double do. P. It's not a hippo. Double P, I, know. I know. It's a yes, yeah. Okay. Um, can you ex- first of all tell people what the acronym means? Okay. Thank you. So it's health insurance portability and what's the A? Accountability. Accountability. Yes. Accountability. Say portability. I was going to try to be funny and do a P word. <laughs> okay. So explain the HIPAA Security Compliance Program and the extension of HIPAA into the high-tech act. Sure, actually um, HIPAA's been around for two decades, so it's been around for quite a while. And there are basically three aspects to HIPAA, two that are relevant to our conversation. One is about privacy of medical information, and the other is about the security of that same information. There's a third category about um, electronic data and, and EDI and different technologies for, you know, what's an acceptable technology. That's something completely foreign to me. But on those two categories of privacy and security, HIPAA requires an organization to do basic blocking and tackling. First, there's a concept called a protected health uh, information, PHI, or a medical record, and header to that record, other Mm -hmm. pieces of information. And that information has to be safeguarded in specific ways. Um, Technologies like encryption, while they're not mandated, are very helpful. Um, data loss prevention to- tools, access governance over that information, even in physical controls like locking the information in a cabinet. <laughs> yeah. um, data retention issues, again, not required specifically or strongly encouraged. Having procedures in place to allow people to provide consent in order to share that information, especially out of the boundaries of your local physician and, and medical community that you participate in. So, in general, these procedures have and been And discarding, around. isn't there? Oh, oh and yeah. absolutely. Yeah, for how you discard it. Mm-hmm. So, these procedures have been around for a while, and they really pertain to a group of organizations called providers. They're, they're the organizations you go to when you're sick. Right. They're the people who are hopefully treating you. And they could also be the insurance companies that are processing your health information. That's another story. Mm-hmm. And these organizations are, again, subject to those rules. But then we have this other, like, 90%, which is a a group called a business associate. And a business associate are organizations that routinely get information from healthcare providers and do a whole bunch of things. Could be research, could be marketing, could be accounting. It could be any, just 
everything. Yes. So those organizations have been subject to requirements, legal requirements and contractual requirements. Now, based on the new law, high tech, they're subject to the same HIPAA security and privacy rule. And they're freaking out because they're not ready to comply. That's right. what we found anyway. Mm. So the purpose of the study was what, basically? Well, we knew that high tech requires organizations, business associates, but also companies that are on the provider side to step up to the plate to do more than they have. Mm. You have to remember HIPAA, even though it's been around for a while, I can only count a handful of enforcement actions with serious consequences. You know, like a $70,000 fine when you're a you know, $25 billion organization is laughable. In right. Some cases. And, and, you know, under HIPAA, there's no private right of action. So right. so if you're an individual and, let's say, somebody became a victim of a, a medical identity theft right. or something, you really have no private right of action yeah. under, under HIPAA at all. Absolutely. Or if there's been some big breach or something and you've been injured in some other way, there's no private right of action. So that's that's another reason for no enforcement. you got to have the Department of Health or and Human Services sure. who enforces it or attorneys gen, attorney generals, right? Right. It's a federal agency, so that's that's a big problem too with no Huge enforcement. Problem. The, the, the little guy is basically not going to have his or her day in court. We exactly. know that, and so organizations haven't really been doing a great job, and enforcement has been really mediocre. Mm-hmm. In the new law, of course, enforcement is now up under a group called the um, Office of Civil Rights, the OCR, mm-hmm. and and probably most importantly, the FTC has very strict requirements on data breach notification. And if you are viewed as kind of a sloppy organization, you could have huge monstrous fines and reputation damage. No one wants to be on the wrong side of the FTC. Right. They are the regulator of consequence. Yes. And they're now involved. So that's, I think, that's where It's good, but they don't have the resources. You know, so they're only going to get the big guys that are going to have some splash, you know, in the press. So the little guy isn't going to really get it unless they're really egregious. Yeah, I think that clearly the state's attorney generals will probably be more active as well, but I agree. There's still not a huge army as required to make sure the companies are complying. Right. So tell us how you conducted this study. Well, this is a benchmark study, and we did this project with a, an accounting firm, an auditing firm, Crow Horvath. Um, mm. And Crow Horvath is pretty actively involved in the healthcare industry, and with their help, plus our network of organizations, we were blessed to get 70 participating companies. We went to mm. hundreds and maybe and they thousands. Said no. <laughs> they said, who the heck are you? We're not going to tell you what we do wrong, but we actually found companies <laughs> that were just, um, as to their credit, uh, did they were open and talked about the positives and the negatives, and even the negatives what they talked about. They probably had a little bit of a halo effect. So I'm not sure we got to the real dirt, but they were talking about some concerns that they have. Yeah. 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 So, um, did you find that the health organizations in your study were ready to actually be compliant? I mean, the ones that you studied were the ones that stepped up to the plate, the 70 of them. Of those 70? No, they weren't ready. That's they the beauty weren't. of the, you know, you talk about the honest response. We found that the vast majority admitted that they weren't, and this is now November time frame, so it's really not that far in the past, but they were not ready, and especially the business associates, but even the providers admitted that they weren't ready to comply with the high tech. Hmm. So they basically are either doing a fast, you know, a fast forward on that issue and trying to get too too compliant, or they're taking more of a wait and see. And I think a lot of organizations don't necessarily get into the 
the A level of compliance are more like the B minus or even C plus mm. level. And when they start to see enforcement and they see their neighbors yeah. getting into trouble, then they start to take it pretty seriously. You know, it's funny, Larry, because I'm seeing more and more of these CIPPIT people. In other words, you're a certified information privacy professional like we, got, we all are. Yeah. But now they have the CIPPIT, and they're really pushing. And I met a lot of people who are here to take the the CIPPIT just because of that, and especially in the medical profession because they're saying we're trying to catch up yeah. with what to do. So you're you're absolutely right on, and it, it is kind of scary. I'm so, glad to see certification. Certification is a really good thing, and the fact is that the people who are in the medical office, you know, the the even the receptionist. Not yes. to diminish it, but that person has a lot of control. Oh, yeah. Oh, what, exactly. And yeah. and what they say to you and what they say in front of other people while the whole, yeah. you know, office is being filled with people waiting for the doctor. Oh, Absolutely. Yeah. They have to be, it has, you have to be trained from the top to the bottom and the bottom to the top. And the top has to really care about it. Yeah, but there are just too many letters in that C-I-P-C-I-T. <laughs> Think about it. Sip it. We'll have to have an acronym of some kind. You know? <laughs> exactly. So um, how many of these organizations have experienced data breach incidents involving this? Were they willing they, to yeah, open up and yes. tell you? Yeah. Now, wow. now, now they, wait, this is the good. Wait, and wait the I just want to ask. Um, we're sitting at a table, and, and they, they're probably thirsty. I have all these drinks sitting out here. Whiskey. No, it's no whiskey. But no, wait, if not. you want to get it's, some it's ice for them and cola. drink and Diet Cola and water. All right. So let's go again. We just took a drink break of water and soda, I that, promise. That was really good whiskey. Thank you. <laughs> we don't want to influence oh, these I'm poor sorry. students at the University of California. No, we're doing fine. Okay, so we wet our whistle now. And now we're going to switch gears and talk about one of my favorite issues, which is a real challenge, medical identity theft, which you're going to talk Ooh, about at this conference. That's right. This is good practice for my presentation. Exactly. So first of all, tell us what was the purpose of this study? Well, this study um, is the first, hopefully, of many studies on medical identity theft because the issue is it was actually, I didn't, wasn't even aware of it until the last, probably the last year or two. I started to hear stories about you know, not just an identity theft, which is a pretty dismal situation, but someone's medical identity. How does that work? What is it? What happens? What are the consequences? You know, or do you really lose resources? Or, you know, th those were the things that I was interested in learning about. And basically, in this study, by the way, is sponsored by Experian, and they were also very interested because they provide um, identity protection services, and they started to see a pattern uh, and a growth in this, in this area of identity uh, in this area of identity theft. So what motivated me to do this study was really to learn more and to understand is it a pervasive problem. What was really challenging about this project, to be honest with you, is we had no clue about how many people would fall into the category of a true medical identity theft victim. I mean there's a lot of research, Javelin and, and others have done wonderful studies on identity theft and identity fraud and it you know and mostly be, financial yeah and mostly financial and we get numbers like you know 18% 11% a lot of variance in the numbers of people who actually fall into that category so we wanted to do an empirical study that helped us to identify the base rate how many people in the United States would be be uh, an identity medical identity theft victim in a given year 
And you know, we should stop for one second sure. and kind of clarify that when you're a medical identity theft victim, you're also usually a victim of financial identity oh, theft. Right. And, right. and But the problem is sometimes you don't know about it because sometimes it, it went to your health carrier and, and you didn't get the bill. Right. Or it could take years to get that bill till it goes into collection. And right. we just had a real interesting story in Orange County that I should tell you about. And anyone listening who's in Orange County probably saw it in the paper. Um, there was a medical identity theft case in which a woman went in from a woman from Laguna Niguel went in to get new breasts. All right. You know, she had her she had her fake breasts for about 10 years and needed to to update them and get new breasts. So what she did is she didn't have the money. That's okay. We can laugh. She didn't have the money. And so what she did was she applied for that something like that credit care that they get through the doctor. Mm -hmm, Sure. And she got her new breasts and they thought it was strange that she didn't come in to to for follow up visits. Mm -hmm. And she didn't come in and she didn't pay her bill. And it didn't go to collections yet. But what they found out is they looked at her previous breasts that they kept, and they looked at the ID number, and they, they saw that the name associated with that ID number was not the same name as associated with the new breasts. Oh, and wow. neither was the social. Yeah. So that's how they found, and she now actually is uh, going to go to jail. Mm-hmm. So that was a, a interesting case where the woman who's uh, – got these new breasts, Mm -hmm. okay, Um, the victim didn't even know about it yet. It hadn't gone to collections, and it was just lucky that they thought it was strange and they did some research themselves. So Yeah, we we saw, in in doing our study, we debriefed about 35 or 40 people out of the 716 people who participated in the survey to get to a deeper dive to really try to find out what happened. And there were some incredible stories. You know, as you mentioned, people who didn't realize that their medical record changed and they're they're, arguing with their doctor that their blood type is like, you know, blood type A versus O. And, you know, things like that could be devastating to an individual because it could kill you. And so there were stories about um, enormous amounts of money, unpaid bills that had to be paid in order for someone to keep their medical insurance yes. or to prevent a premium from just skyrocketing for their yes. family. Yes. So this is a, a horrific identity theft crime, in my opinion. It is. And and the sad thing is, you know, if you are a victim of financial identity theft or bank identity theft, you're going to find out about it. And there are right. some, you know, some protocols for how to deal with it. That's the problem is that, first of all, you don't find out about it maybe for years. And second of all, the protocols aren't there. And that's why I actually created a protocol in my book because the protocols that I found weren't really effective. So I'm saying, look, take my book. If you're a victim of medical identity theft, take my book because something in writing has legitimacy and try and use this to get the things changed because that's what works for me. But it is. It is a huge problem. Yeah, it really is. So let me ask you something. What percentage of your respondents experience an identity theft crime, and what percentage of the identity theft crimes involve the medical identity theft in your study? Right. Now, in our study, what we basically conclude, about 9% of the respondents said that they or their like their spouse or their family, their, their yeah. family member experienced an identity theft crime. Mm-hmm. We believe our number is actually a conservative number. So if you compare our number 
to some of the research conducted by Javelin, Javelin actually reports a higher percentage. If you actually take right. one number and multiply it to a couple right. other numbers. They're talking like 11.5 yeah. million or something. But we're in the ballpark. Like, right. And of the 9% of people who are identity theft victims, of that 9%, 5% of those folks, between 5 and 6%, are true medical identity theft victims. We know our numbers an underestimate. We want right. to be conservative. We don't want to say the sky is falling scenario. Sure. So we rec- actually implemented screening criteria that made it actually pretty tough for someone to be a true medical identity theft victim mm-hmm. in our sample. But we think it's probably about five or six percent on the low end. Could be maybe as much as six to seven percent of the total identity theft number. And if you compare it to a base rate to the population, it's probably going to be about a half of one percent. So it's, in terms of numbers, if you look at that, you say, well, that doesn't seem like much. It's a small number. Multiply that by the number of adults in the United States. Multiply that over time. Multiply that by the potential costs associated with it. It becomes a pretty significant chunk of change to the, to the country, to, the, to, the, to our economy. Yes, and, you know, they can't find out by just looking at their credit report. They may see a collection account from a medical. That would be a a way for them to find out. They could find out that way. But if it hasn't gone to collections or some doctors don't send things to collections, that could be, you know, or it could be much, much later that it goes on, so they won't find out that way. It's not like you can look at your credit reports. And your Medical Information Bureau, which you can get a free uh, disclosure from the Medical Information Bureau at Mm MIB.com, that doesn't show unless there's claims for insurance. They don't report everything. Not everybody does. Yeah, it's not the same thing like the credit reporting system. Yeah. So, so how did your people find out? Oh, gosh, you know, there were a number of ways. Um, you mentioned about collection. Maybe they went, learned about it when they were looking at their medical record. Uh, maybe they learned about a data breach, and they actually did their own inquiry, um, and they uh-huh. found out that the data breach did result in some data loss. Um, maybe they, there was a, a renegade, a rogue employee, like mm. the receptionist from hell. Right. And then there, the crime was revealed, and you just happened to be in the same office, and you realized it was also your record that was mm. at risk. So there was, there was definitely, a, and then the insurance company, of course, if they were suspicious, like the case of the breast issue right, here. Right, right, right. You know, something like that usually triggers the individual to do something, and they might, in fact, discover that they were, in fact, a victim. Mm-hmm. So what were the consequences of medical identity theft, and what was the average cost to resolve it? God, it was enormous. Now, you know, you look at a, a, a medical bill, and it could be more expensive than our home. You know, you're in a hospital for two weeks. Um, oh, one, gosh, hundreds of thousands. Yeah, one, one, in one case, uh, one, of our, uh, res- the, uh, one of the respondents to our survey that we debriefed talked about a situation where an individual was in a car accident, had the medical card of this individual, that's another story, actually was treated in the hospital from intensive care and then through recovery was two weeks and it was almost a $100,000 charge. And this guy just leaves town. <laughs> this guy, the, the, the victim realized what happened and said, well, you know, I'm sorry, I, I don't know. And it, there are other factors. For example, he actually shared this card with this individual. Oh. And the end result is he was now in pa- obligated to pay 100000 Right, because he authorized it, right? Yeah. Well, yeah. he w- really didn't authorize it, but he did yeah. authorize it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. By authorizing, so, by using the card, yeah. yeah. So he And he wanted to keep his medical insurance and not mm. go into bankruptcy. But to this guy, is probably on a relatively low income level. That's probably a lifetime of payment. 
Oh my goodness! Yeah, I have I have actually spoken with victims as well who, there were operations done on people, and you know, and they didn't have medical insurance. And of course, then the collection agency comes after you. And the one good thing is, is you can prove I don't have. You know, look at my stomach. I did. I didn't have any surgery. No scar here. I have both of my lungs. You know. (laughs) Exactly. You didn't take out the wrong kidney or anything. There. I have both of my kidneys. So yeah, it's um, it is a problem. We're going to see what's going to happen with it. I I can't wait to hear you this afternoon because I want to see what the panel talks about and what their resolution is. Thank you. Don't heckle me now. Oh, no. I'll just, I'll just give you a smile so you feel good. Remember, you should co-present with me. Forget about it. I know. We'll do it another time. We will. Uh, We'll see if they tell what's in my book, if it's wrong or right or whatever. I can't wait to read it. All right. So how about security of voice data? We call that vishing, right? Vishing. Yeah. Voice data is kind of a weird thing, right? I mean, we are on a cell phone 24-7, 365, and somehow we don't treat that as data, right? All this conversation, and we assume the company that builds that phone, that Motorola or whatever it is, that phone is really secure. My iPhone Oh, boy, oh, Bob, that is one secure piece of technology. But we don't realize that the bad guys, they figured out a way to get to that information, and they probably have a way of not only getting to the information generically, but identifying the people they want to listen to. And so what we find in nation states are sponsoring all sorts of hacking and criminal events that or incidents that get to really important information. You're, you're traveling on business, you're on your phone, you have a conversation with the home office, that information may not be secure. What's really interesting is people in security are not really looking at this as the type of data they're responsible for securing. Mm. You know, their view is, well, it's not my job, or we don't even have a policy for this thing. I mean, we can't tell um, Larry or Bill or Susan to stop using a cell phone when they travel because that's your primary Right, that's how you, exactly. So the security of voice data is a real problem, and it's just now suddenly it's on the radar screen and you know there have been things that have helped create awareness for example um, a researcher I forget where he he taught it but he was at a major university cracked a code that was not supposed to be cracked it was supposed to be the most sophisticated that was that December 2009 thing of the GSM code yeah yeah yeah. Uh so there's points of light that this is an issue that could get resolved and it may be easy relatively easy to resolve if we build the device with greater security Easier said than done because it costs more, and therefore people are probably, they're not looking to spend more money on a device. And so there could be some trade-offs, but I think over time, the the only way to solve this problem is through better technology. So that was the purpose, to figure out what is really happening right. and, and who's got, the, what the problems are? And, okay. how, and, and what whether organizations in general are spending real resources trying, or even taking any action to try to mitigate the risk. And what we found out in general is that, you know, there really is not a lot of action out there and just a lot of, like, disbelief that this is a big security issue for the company. So did you interview the, you interviewed the IT people, correct? Mostly IT, but also CISOs, Chief Information Security Officers. Uh-huh. And it was interesting that the IT people said, well, you know, we worry about a lot of things. This is just one that we'll put on the back burner. <laughs> but the security people said, you know, you're right. I never really thought about it, but when I think about it, that's like huge. So, you know, it's again, it depends on the perspective and the background. But people in security tend to be much more concerned about this issue, and people in IT need to wake up. 
I don't know how they can keep up. I mean, how do they sleep at night, the IT people and the security people? There is just so much technology going yeah. on that how can they even keep up with this stuff, well, Larry? The way they sleep at night is drugs. I'm say <laughs> <laughs> because the stress level it has got to be. You. I, I was just going to say you probably ask them those kinds of questions too. Like, yeah. how do you sleep at night? Oh, I yeah. do. You know, they tell me these war <laughs> stories, like cyber warfare, and I have a friend. Uh, Jerry Archer, and I think he's participated, or he should participate in one of your... Who is it? Jerry Archer, he's at Sally Oh, Day. I know Jerry. Yeah, he, yeah, yeah. he was at a renaissance. Right. And uh, he he tells these stories like, oh, my God, how, then how did you go home at night? Like, how, how did you yeah. deal with this? Yeah. So there, there are some real big issues out there. Hmm. So what did the IT practitioners believe was the method most used to intercept security, you know, secrets, you know, that were going well, on in these cell phones? In, in, in some ways, it was basically just bad control over all communications. One of the common vehicles, believe it or not, are these 800 numbers or 866 numbers, these bridge, like we just have our own bridge number. Yes. And so, you know, in a code, and we just use it generally for meetings. Yes. And someone says, hey, I really want to intercept a, a meeting that Mari is chairing, so I mm. have the code. And they just listen. And if you don't read the statement, because maybe it doesn't even go to you, it goes to someone in the purchasing department, you know, there it is. There's a, you know, there were like 11 people on the call. Well, but I only had eight (laughs) or the other three. So, I mean, there are those kinds of stories. It's not as high tech as you might think. Um, The the Chinese, not to pick on China, um, the the People's Republic of China, there were uh, pieces, pieces of information, evidence that a lot of secure communications around sales, around technology transfers, uh, around uh, corporate intelligence, a lot of this information was leaking out. So they're using some, you know, state-of-the-art technology that um, probably we're trying to figure out what it is that they do. But it's basically hacking the, the device. Right, right. So, Larry, you did another really interesting study, the economic impact of privacy on online behavioral advertising. And this was a benchmark study of Internet marketers and advertisers. So, first, let's talk about what is behavioral advertising? Well, um, online behavioral advertising and behavioral advertising is where the marketer tries to determine the behavior of the um, potential customer, the targeted customer, based on what you do on the internet, based on the movies you watch, based on your television program, whatever it is, all of that good stuff about what you do is used to send you an ad. And the theory is that if I know your interests, your tastes, your preferences, your habits, you're more likely to read that ad and click it and maybe even buy a product or service. That's really what OBA, online behavioral advertising, is all about. And the O part is online because so much of behavioral advertising is done on the internet. Right. So we, we know a lot of the benefits. Let's talk about the benefits sure. and the burdens. Yeah, I mean, the benefits are great. I mean, if you have an interest in, say, piloting, I'd like to fly planes. Yes. And I get an ad for, you know, a, a, a device that I need. And or a new 20, plane that you want to oh, buy. Oh, definitely a new plane <laughs> at a 20% discount. Right. I'm there, baby. <laughs> but the reality is that um, when you do that, you have to do it on the basis of information. And some of that information may be information you think is too sensitive. And being a pilot isn't too sensitive. But, say, religious, background, preferences, uh, sexual Medical stuff. Med- again, medical stuff. Yeah. That might be stepping over the line. So, you know, I get a, a, my, my ad for Viagra, and I'm not happy when I, you know. even Not me. <laughs> no, but th- those things are private, and you definitely right. do not want 
an advertiser or a marketer to be getting information that you view as too sensitive from a marketing perspective. It may be perfectly acceptable for your physician to have that information, but for a marketer or an online advertiser to have that data may be stepping over the line. So that's the problem. Where do you balance between the great great ad that you're going to find useful to the ad that may still be interesting to you, but it, you stepped over that proverbial privacy line, and this is not something you're willing to accept. Right, and I remember there was a time that a woman had lost her baby, you know, uh, like SIDS, sure. and then she kept getting advertisements for baby stuff. Oh, yeah. So that's a, just an emotional upheaval to get that kind of stuff. So those are some of the challenges with this online behavioral advertising. So what was the purpose of this study? Well, this study is kind of an interesting study. We, I mean, everything we do, I think, is interesting. It is this interesting. Is, this is really interesting because yeah. this was a um, conjecture that we had. We believe that the noise, the regulatory issues around OBA, online behavioral mm-hmm. advertising, has created a lot of uncertainty in the minds of marketers and internet advertisers. Because people talk about OBA as being the greatest thing since sliced bread, so that's a good, but, but the bad is, well, they're not using it as extensively as they might. So my theory was that marketers were not using it because of privacy fear. They, mm-hmm. they wanted to do it, they wanted to use it, but they decided not to, or the, someone in their company said, you can't do it. And we asked them the question, we did a whole bunch of questions that led to that question, and we found that privacy fear had a huge effect on their use and acceptance of OBA. So you, th- who did you interview for this? For this study, we interviewed both marketers, marketing leaders, people responsible for internet marketing primarily, but sometimes mm-hmm. even the CMO in, in some smaller size organizations. But we also looked at internet advertisers, people who are in the business of, of creating the methodology for OBA and actually sending and circulating an ad on the internet. Mm-hmm. But the key variable is that we absolutely found that that these people did care deeply about privacy and did not want to step over the line because they understood. It wasn't because they care about privacy. I think they do. But they also realized by being um, viewed as privacy uh, evading or a, pr- a problem in a privacy sense, they would lose market share, that they, they would be, it would be a big turnoff to their, uh, to their customers. So that was their fear. If they could overcome that fear, they would, in fact, use more OBA. And had what, it, what happens as a result, and this is what we document in the paper, number one, they would have greater efficiency in marketing because OBA does lead to better advertising. And, in fact, the, they measure, on average, about 1.5 times greater efficiency in marketing than a, an ad that's just generic, not targeted. Right. So it's a huge improvement. Well, it works with Amazon. If I go on Amazon, sure. they immediately tell me, here's the newest privacy books, yeah. which, you know, it's great for me. It saves me time. And I go, wow, that's great. They know my interest and that Absolutely. kind of. But uh, how about the consumer side? Like, I do business with Amazon. I like Amazon. I, yeah, I like too. to see that. But what about companies that I don't do business with and they're doing that? What about that? Yeah, well, so, so the fear, if you can get over the fear, you can enjoy huge profit. And okay. that's the good news for marketers. But getting over the fear means that they have to do a better job and not necessarily collecting the stuff, all the stuff that they can use to identify you. There might be sacred, you know, maybe health information is sacred. It should not be used for marketing. So they need to have restrictions in terms of what's acceptable or not acceptable. They also need to know their end customer better. They need to know right. that some people do care deeply about privacy, and maybe those people aren't going to receive the perfect ad. Even if you're going to lose some revenue, it may be a good idea to lose a little bit 
than to lose it all because you're viewed as a privacy bad guy. Mm-hmm. So I definitely think that organizations still have a ways to go before they come up with that right formula. But definitely there's money on the table right now. Companies are losing potential revenues because they're not using OBA to the fullest extent possible. Right. But they have to do it ethically. But they have to do it ethically. There's no way to do it successfully without being transparent, with good disclosure, and providing consent to ultimately to the end. Right. And hasn't there been a lot going on with the Federal Trade Commission in this? Yeah, and so they're, I, I guess they're worried about regulation as well. Well, the, the regulatory issues are huge, right? You don't want to be not only viewed as the bad guy in a reputation sense, but the FTC's bad guy. Remember, yeah. we talked about regulation. Exactly. And the FTC is very active looking at these issues, and I know there's a potential litigation against companies like Google and others that are big in this industry. And I'm not saying they're doing anything wrong, but... The FTC and other organizations are going to be spending a lot of time focusing on abuses in OBA. So what is your recommendation for businesses? We, you know, we sit here on the campus of the University of California. Sure. We have a lot of, we have a big business school. We have a lot of businesses that drive by. So what should they be thinking about when they're considering online behavioral advertising? Well, the first thing is if OBA makes sense for your organization, if, if a- internet advertising makes, makes sense to your organization, you want to look into it. It basically does work and it does create great revenue potential. And then if you have a strategy for using it, figure out how you can do it without violating the privacy of your customer targeted customer. It's a two-step process. First, you have to believe that it could improve your business, and I think it will in many cases, and then B, come up with a formula, good transparency and disclosure and consent. Give people the opportunity to say no. And I think if you do that, 99% of your problems won't be a problem. You know, Larry, I like it when they ask me, First, even b- besides saying no, I like it when they say, would you like to get... I love when they do I that. love that because as, uh, there are some companies I want to know, yeah. especially if they're going to give me discounts. Yeah. Discounts <laughs> you know, I mean, seriously, good. that's a great thing. I mean, I, I get discounts from certain companies that I love to do business with. And, I, you know, Aaron Brothers Art Mart, you know, they said, do you want to get discounts? Do you want us to behave? You know, we know what you like. And yeah. boy, I get that 20% off and I'm a happy camper. I know. I like to get my hunting supplies that way, you know, 20%. And, and, your, and your piloting stuff. My piloting. Uh, by the way, I'm not a hunter. I just I don't want to tell the audience I know, that. but, you know, but Lloyd, I, but Lloyd, but Lloyd is. Lloyd so he wants to go hunting over there in Michigan with you. Yeah. Exactly. But I'm a fisherman. I'm a fisher. And, Yes, and he likes to that, go fishing, yeah, that's too. cool stuff. And we're going to take you fishing. Marlin fishing. Well, we don't have too much marlin, but we, we have big sharks. and we Shark have <laughs> We have halibut, which I like to eat. I like to eat halibut. I like fishing. to eat halibut. That's what they're doing right by our, our boat. So Great. anyway, we it looks like we ha- are out of time. Well, but we you. love you so much, both you and Susan Jason. Yeah. You guys are terrific. Thank you, Mari. And uh, we look forward to, again, interviewing you very soon about the next Benchmark Studies and learn so much from you. You oh, are wonderful. Great. This has been a great interview. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. It's fun. You are, uh, we're signing off here from Washington, D.C. And uh, join us again next Monday morning, 8 to 9 a.m. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye. Stay private. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents.
I'm Mari Frank, host of Privacy Piracy, which airs every Monday morning from 8 to 9 a.m. right here on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. I'm also so privileged to present the weekly segment of Orange County Sheriff News and Safety Tips. And today we are introducing you to Lieutenant Mark Levy, who is the Chief of Police Services for the city of beautiful Dana Point. And he is the commander of the Orange County Sheriff's Department Mounted Unit. He's been with the department for 24 years. Thank you so much for joining us, Lieutenant Levy. Well, thank you very much for having me on. Well, Dana Point is such a great city. I love to go there. It's right next door to us. What are some of the challenges that you have as a resort town? Well, uh, as a resort city, uh, and we like to consider ourselves a destination city, uh, we attract a lot of people from from all over the world. We have people coming here uh, and staying at our resorts. Uh, we have one of the five diamond resorts here, uh, the Ritz-Carlton, and uh, uh, we have great facilities, great beaches, and at the same time when we have all of that, uh, when we attract people, tourists, and, and even our local residents, uh, we unfortunately attract uh, people who would uh, like to do uh, like to take advantage of us. And that would be what, just theft, mostly property theft? Yes. I mean, in the city of Dana Point, 95% of all of our criminal activity is property related. That includes burglaries, petty thefts, and grant thefts. Mm. So what are you guys doing about it? I hear you have a great new program. Well, uh, we really do, and, and we're really hoping to to reduce uh, the amount of crime here in Dana Point, and we're really looking for our community members to help us. Uh, when we look at our numbers, uh, we know that uh, 40% of that, that 95% uh, theft rate is, is dealing with vehicles, and this is people taking items from vehicles, not actually auto theft, but people getting into vehicles and actually taking, pro- taking cell phones, laptops, uh, incidental items, cash, wallets. Uh, we have a, a wide variety of things that get stolen. Uh, of those vehicles, 48% of those vehicles, almost half of those vehicles, are left unlocked. Oh my goodness. So we've we've provided an environment where we're attracting people to come to our city and simply walk along and and check door handles and as those door handles are uh respond and the vehicle is open, uh they have the ability to go inside and and peruse uh your belongings and take those things that they think are going to be valuable in some sort of a resale. And so if we can eliminate that if we could just eliminate that 48%, you know, if people would just lock their cars, and, and our program is called Hide It, Lock It, or Lose It, uh, we need people to take and put their items of value out of sight. Because mm-hmm. when people walk by, when people that are intent on stealing something from vehicles, they're looking in the vehicle. They want to see what's in there. The second thing they do then is they, they check the door handles. If the vehicle is... Even if there's something attractive inside uh, and the vehicle is locked, it's highly likely that they're going to move on to the next vehicle. So if we can get our public, the citizens and the visitors here in Dana Point, to simply put their valuables out of sight and lock their vehicles, we could save six, probably almost 7,000 man hours every year that we expend on this highly preventable uh, type of crime. 
mm-hmm. and that translates into about three hundred thousand dollars. Wow! Uh, and you think value. about it, yeah. And also, if if people have their laptop there and it has sensitive data, you're also preventing identity theft. So hide it, lock it, or lose it. Right? Absolutely, ma'am. So give your website, and we will have you back next week. Great. We have uh, hide it, lock it, or lose it. dot org. Uh, it's all one word. Uh, if people want to locate it, they can either go to uh, the city of Dana Point. dot org, or they can go to the Orange County Sheriff's Department. dot org. Each of those sites, or the directly to the hide it, lock it, or lose it site, uh, can get them in. We also have a uh, a program that we're launching. It's more youth oriented, and it's called Schwazuki. Oh, cute. Well, well, we'll look for that at the website. Lieutenant Mark Levy, you are wonderful, and we so appreciate you. We'll have you back next week. Thank, Thank you. Thank you very much. Okay, bye. Bye.